through our lives, Lord, through our worship, we pray. And so now as we open your word together, speak to us, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Just want to add my welcome to you as well. So great to have you sharing with us, those online as well. Um, This morning, as we come into our Easter season, I want to take some time to reflect on the significance and and the power of the cross of Christ. Um, In 2004, Time magazine ran a front cover article entitled, Why Did Jesus Die? Why Did Jesus Have to Die? Uh, It can coincide at the time with the release of The Passion of the Christ, which, um, if you remember that time, drew headlines around the world, people were quite confronted with the reality of the, the sacrifice that Jesus made, the reality of um, the, his crucifixion and what that really meant physically for Jesus. But when it comes to faith, um, when it comes to faith in Christ, this really is the most important question of all that we need to ask ourselves. Why did Jesus have to die? What was the significance of the cross? Why did he have to experience such a violent and cruel death? And the answer to this question really is the most important truth for any person to come to understand. What is the significance, the meaning of the cross? And so to do this, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that speaks to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll read from verse 18. You might want to follow along. It'll come up on the screens behind as well. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18. It says this, For the message of the cross... Is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts Boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you. I did not come with eloquence eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is God's word to us this morning. On the walls and ceilings of the catacombs uh, outside of Rome, where the earliest Christians 
um, hid from persecution. There are a number of symbols that the earliest Christians put have uh, drawn up um, in artwork, in inscriptions up on the walls of those catacombs. And a number of these symbols came to be identified with, with the Christians. So, symbols such as a peacock. They'll draw a peacock, peacock on the walls of the catacombs, symbolizing immortality. A dove was another symbol that was commonly drawn. An anchor was another one, the athlete's victory palm. But one in particular was that of a fish. Um, the significance of the fish for the early believers was that the Greek word for fish, ichthus, was an acronym with each of the letters standing for Jesus Christ, Son of God, Saviour. And only the initiated would know what these symbols meant. But fairly quickly, certainly by the second century, there was another symbol that became universally um, used as the symbol of the Christian faith. And this symbol was the symbol of the cross. Uh, Christians not only drew and painted and engraved the cross as a pictorial symbol, but they actually made the sign of the cross on themselves or on others. One of the first witnesses uh, to this practice was the um, historian, the ancient historian Tertullian. Around 200 AD, he wrote the following. He said, at every step forward and movement, at every going in and out, when we put on our clothes and shoes, when we bathe, when we sit at the table, when we light the lamps, on couch, on seat, in all the ordinary actions of daily life, we trace upon our forehead the sign of the cross. The cross was so significant for these earliest believers. Um, for us today, the cross is very commonplace. We see the cross all around us in art, in jewellery, in popular culture even. But of all the symbols for the Christians to choose, the cross was really the most astonishing given what the cross represented in, in their um, culture, in their time. The, the shame that was associated with crucifixion, the humiliation associated with it made it incredibly strange. Why would these believers choose the cross as their symbol? Well, the reason for this is because they knew that the cross was at the very center of their faith, of the Christian faith. And the earliest believers knew it was the message of the cross that had the power to change lives. It was the message of the cross that had transformed their lives. It was central for them, the very center of their faith. And we see here in, in 1 Corinthians that this is Paul affirming the centrality of the cross. He says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is a very strong statement, but Paul is saying the cross of Christ is at the very center of our faith. It is the focal point. The cross of Christ is the most important act in salvation, in God's salvation history, God's salvation plan. Jesus' death on the cross. And we see the centrality of the cross across all of the, the scriptures, right across the, the God's word. The writers of the four gospels devote a disproportionate amount of space to Christ's last week and death in comparison to the rest of his life and ministry. 40% of Matthew's gospel is focused on the passion narrative. That is a lot of the text to be devoted to this one week of Christ's life. 60% of Mark's gospel devoted to the passion narrative. 30% of Luke's gospel and 50% of the gospel of John is devoted to just this part of Christ's life and ministry. 
All of the gospel writers clearly saw Christ's death on the cross as central to the gospel truth, central to the Christian faith. And this same emphasis on the cross is seen then right across the rest of the New Testament, but not just in the New Testament either, but the Old Testament also points to the centrality of the cross. The Old Testament religion was sacrificial from the very beginning, right back in Genesis, ever since Abel brought lambs from his flock. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Worshippers of Jehovah brought sacrifices to him. Altars were built. Animals were sacrificed. Blood was shed long before the law of Moses. And then under Moses, the covenant that had been ratified between God and his people at Mount Sinai, um, then brought in what had been somewhat haphazard, now became regularized by this divine ordinance that God had given under this covenant relationship. And the Old Testament sacrifices foreshadowed the the sacrifice of Christ in invisible symbol. The prophets and the psalmists foretold it. When we read through the Old Testament, we can see Jesus in the persecuted but innocent victim described in certain psalms, which were later ascribed to and applied to Jesus. We see him in Zechariah's shepherd who is smitten and whose sheep are scattered abroad. We see him in Daniel's anointed one who is cut off. And above all, we see Jesus in the servant songs towards the end of the prophecy of Isaiah, the suffering servant of Jehovah, the despised man of sorrows who is wounded for the transgressions of others and is led like a lamb to the slaughter and who bears the sins of many, Isaiah tells us. One writer has said that when we look at the scriptures from the earliest chapters of Genesis to the final chapters in Revelation, we can trace what has some have called a scarlet thread that weaves right through the whole of scripture. The message of the cross is central. And Jesus knew this about his own mission as well. We see it in Jesus' own understanding. The watershed moment for Jesus' public ministry was when he began to teach openly and freely to his disciples that he would need to suffer and die. We read about it in Mark chapter 8. And just before this, Jesus had asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, the apostle Peter said, you are the Messiah. You're the Son of God. And from that declaration on, This is what happened. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. But we read that as soon as Jesus declared this, Peter then rebuked Jesus, horrified by the fate that he had predicted about himself. And what does Jesus do? Jesus, in return, rebukes Peter in the strongest of language. This is what he says back to Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This same apostle who in confessing Jesus' divine messiahship and received this revelation from the Father, had the straight away following being deceived by the devil to deny the necessity of the cross. And Jesus' harsh response must have astonished his hearers, but Jesus says, this is my mission. The cross, the cross is the central act of God's saving work. 
And it's from this point on in his ministry that we read, Jesus resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem, where he knew the cross awaited him. This was his mission. Jesus knew that he had come to die, to give his life, he says, as a ransom for many. So the message of the cross is the central truth of the Christian faith. Interestingly, um, not only is it of the, the center of the Christian faith, but it's actually the center of all of human history. Do you realize that? The cross is at the very center of all of history. We, we have a word we still use today when we say that something, we use the term, we say that something is the crux of the matter. The word crux is the Latin word for cross. The cross is at the center of it all. But Paul shows us not only is the cross central, but the cross is also offensive. Let me read to you again, verse 22. He says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. The cross is offensive to many. Why is the cross so offensive? Well, firstly, because it's such a cruel and violent death. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians around 500 BC, but the Romans perfected crucifixion. In the time of Jesus, they had perfected this horrific form of execution. Uh, And in the days of Jesus, crucifixion was reserved for the most horrendous criminals. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus called crucifixion the most wretched of deaths, right? And this is in a culture where they were familiar with death and violence. But he said, this is the most wretched of deaths. The ancient Roman philosopher Cicero asked that decent Roman citizens not even speak of the cross because it was too disgraceful a subject for the ears of decent people. The pain of crucifixion of the cross was so horrendous that a word was invented to explain it. The word excruciating, meaning literally from the cross. A crucified person could hang on the cross for days, passing in and out of consciousness as their lungs struggled to breathe while laboring under the weight of their bodies. It wasn't uncommon for the victims to slump their body in an effort to get the air out of their lungs to try and speed up their death, such was the agony of what they were experiencing. I can't even speak in this setting of other aspects of the effect of a crucifixion on the human body because it's just too offensive to even talk about in a public setting like this. Simply put, the cross was offensive. Crucifixion was very confronting. But not only that, but the cross was associated with shame and and weakness and disgrace and humiliation. There's a a famous piece of ancient graffiti which highlights this. It was graffiti that was made by a a Roman scratched in plaster on the wall of a room. And the image seems to show a young man worshipping a crucified donkey-headed figure. And the Greek inscription translates to, Alexamenos worships his God indicating that the graffiti was apparently meant to mock a Christian named Alexamenos for worshipping a God who had been crucified. Who would worship a crucified God? How foolish. How offensive that someone would choose to do that. You know, the main reason that the cross was so offensive wasn't any of these factors as 
as offensive as they are, but none of these actually was the true offense of the cross. Paul explains to us what the true offense of the cross of Christ is. He explains it in Galatians 5 verse 11. He says, brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, a a, a works-based righteousness, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. What Paul is saying here is that the main offense of the cross is that it shows us that our religiosity is not enough, that our good works are not enough. The cross reveals to us that every one of us are a sinner in desperate need of a saviour. This is the true offense of the cross. It reveals to us that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe or could ever really fully comprehend. And this message deeply offended the pride that filled the self-righteous hearts of the people. And it continues to do so today. I came across a message from the great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon. And in this message he says this. He says, There is something in the cross of Christ which hurts men's pride. And that is, it is opposed to all of their notions of human ability. The man who is relying for salvation on his own strength does not like the doctrine of the cross. The cross offends because it goes clean contrary to their ideas of human merit. There is not a soul in all the world that by nature loves to be stripped of all merit. No, the last thing man likes to part with is his righteousness. I have known poor sinners stand on Sinai's top until their knees knock together, yet they have clung to their self-righteousness, even there. I have known men stand where God's earthquakes were shaking the ground under their feet and the thunder and lightning were playing above their heads, yet they still held fast their self-righteousness. It's a hard thing to get that away from men. It is the hardest thing in the world to kill. You may cut the evil weed self-righteousness up, but when you think you have got to the last root of it, it will be shooting up again before you can sharpen your knife to cut it up once more. This evil thing is bred in man's nature. When you preach against it, see how men will roar at you. They cannot bear that doctrine. Tell men that they are good sort of folk that they will like. They will like to hear that. Give people a good conceit of themselves and they will like to listen to you. But that self-conceit is the ruin of tens of thousands. I am sure it is only when we begin to say, I'm a poor sinner. And nothing at all but Jesus Christ is my all in all, that we are saved. But as long as we are content with ourselves and our natural sinful condition, there is not the slightest hope for us. So you see, Spurgeon says, this is the offense of the cross, that we do not let men trust in their own merits. In her autobiography, My Life, former Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir tells the story of her devout Jewish grandfather who lived in Russia. He was required to serve in the Russian army for 16 years. And during that time, he tried to keep every Jewish law and custom, even though it meant that he faced intense persecution, even being forced to to kneel on a stone floor for hours. 
When he was released, he feared that he may have somehow broken the law. And so for the rest of the life, of his life, he slept on a stone floor using a stone for his pillow to try to make up for any sin he may have accidentally committed. He was trying to atone for his own sin. The tragedy of this story is that he never came to understand that there was one who had come to pay the debt of his sin, to forgive him, to set him free. But the offense of the cross is that we cannot save ourselves, that our best efforts will never be enough, but rather we are sinners in need of a saviour. Sleeping on stone floors, stone pillows, it will never be enough. There's only one who could atone for our sins, and that was Jesus. But the good news is that there is more to the story. Paul explains to us not only the offense of the cross, but the power of the cross. Let me read again to you, verse 18. For the message of cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. How is the cross the power of God. Well, firstly, the New Testament affirms that the cross was the place of ultimate victory that Jesus won over the powers of darkness, over the evil one. It was at the cross that Jesus disarmed and triumphed over Satan and the principalities and powers of evil. Colossians 2 verse 15 says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Praise God for the victory of Jesus on the cross, the ultimate victory. And it's impossible to read the New Testament without being impressed by this atmosphere among his followers of this joyful confidence which pervades it. There was no defeatism uh, about the early Christians. They spoke rather of victory. And this was because of their understanding of what Jesus had done for them on the cross, the victory he had won for them. But a second way in which the cross is the power of God is also explained here. In verse 30, Paul goes on to say, It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul is saying here the ultimate power of the cross is the fact that on the cross, Jesus saved us by taking our place. He went to the cross to forgive our sins by becoming our sin bearer, becoming our substitute. This is how it's put in, Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2 verse 24. He himself bore our sins, it says, in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And through the sacrifice, through his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection, Jesus is now our righteousness and our holiness and our redemption. Praise God for this incredible truth. But across the ages, a lot of people have found this truth a stumbling block, even an offense. It was Mahatma Gandhi who said these words. He said, I could accept Jesus as a martyr, an embodiment of sacrifice and a divine teacher, but not as the most perfect man ever born. His death on the cross was a great example to the world, but that there was anything like a mysterious or miraculous virtue in it, my heart could not accept. 
And for many people, just like Gandhi, they see Jesus' death on the cross as a good example for us to follow, an example of sacrificial love, a good virtuous life. And in many ways, it's true that, that without a doubt, in fact, Jesus' death on the cross was an example for us. And we are called to live in the way of the cross. But the power of the cross is not in the fact that it was an example for us. The power of the cross was in the fact that Jesus there atoned for our sins, that he took our place, becoming our sin bearer so that our sins could be forgiven and we could be made right with God, holy before God redeemed. Let me read again Colossians 2, but I'm going to read a couple of the verses preceding. It says from verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, not some of them, all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. We were in debt to God, but he cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, and he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is the power of the cross. On the cross, our debt has been paid, paid in full. The debt of our sin that condemned us, that stood against us, has been taken away. He has forgiven us all our sins, not some of our sins, all of our sins. They have been nailed to the cross. This is the message of the cross which transforms lives. It transformed the lives of the early believers. It continues to transform lives today. One writer has said, believing Christ died is history But believing he died for you is salvation. But this idea of substitutionary atonement of Jesus on the cross has been a stumbling block for many. Some see it as immoral and unjust that the guilty go free and the innocent one is is punished. How could a just and moral God allow that? Others say that this substitutionary atonement depicts a loving Jesus who has to extract forgiveness from a wrathful, reluctant God. Some have even said that it's a form of divine child abuse, a father sacrificing his son. But this is actually a denial of one of the most central doctrines of, of the Bible and Christianity, namely that there is one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the name Jesus means God saves. And his name Emmanuel means God with us. And Paul says God was reconciling the world. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. Even while on earth, Jesus said that he indwells the Father and the Father indwells him. And Paul adds that the fullness of God dwells in Christ. So what this means is that On the cross, what happened on the cross was that God came and he substituted himself for us. That's what he was doing. He was substituting his very self for us. And this is the answer to the objections about the seeming injustice of substitutionary atonement. John Stott says this. He says, The biblical gospel of atonement is of God satisfying himself by substituting himself for us. The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. 
Well, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. This is the power of the cross. It's interesting that in literature and plays and cinema, substitutionary sacrifice is always the most riveting and moving plot point and it resonates deep within our hearts. It comes up again and again and again in these stories. One example is the movie The Last of the Mohicans where the British Mayor Duncan Hayward asks his Indian captors, captors if he might die in the flame so that Cora, the one that he loves, might go free. And not just Cora, but also Nathaniel as well. And as he's dragged away by his captors, we are just, it's hard not to be just enthralled or drawn into this unflinching willingness he has to die to save others, one of which has even been a rival of his. And interestingly, as he does this, as he gives himself so these others can go free, he dies with his arms bound and stretched out as if he is on a cross. There's something about this plot line that, that moves us deeply. But it's not just in movies and cinemas and stories, but it's in real life as well. Dr. Labrescu was a professor at Virginia Tech, and it was 2007, where that, that dreadful, horrific day when a teenager, Sung Cho, started opening fire on random people across the campus. Dr. Labrescu realized that everyone in his class was in danger. And in an act of incredible sacrifice, he went and put his body up against the door of his classroom to hold that door shut so that Cho would not be able to get in and begin shooting at his students. And by doing this, he did actually manage to stop Cho from coming into the classroom. But in the process, Cho shot through the door and, and Labrescu was shot five times, one of those shots fatally killing him, a shot to the head. As a direct result of his Labrescu's actions, all of the students were saved and he was naturally hailed as a hero. And the students in that classroom never could, could, could um, were just so deeply moved. But why would he do this? Why would he sacrifice his life for us? These stories, they move us so deeply. One writer explains it like this. He says, it's because we know from the mundane corners of our life to the most dramatic that all life-changing love is substitutionary sacrifice. We know that anybody who has ever done anything that really made a difference in our lives, made a sacrifice, stepped in and gave something or paid something or bore something so we would not have to. It's true, isn't it? And This is the power of the cross. There's something about this message that resonates deep within the human heart. You know, in the first centuries of the Christian church, when Christians were under vigorous persecution, believers found a way to communicate their faith in subtle ways. I already said that one of those ways was through some of the symbols they knew that only the initiated would know. 
But another way that they would identify other followers, other believers, was that they would greet each other with their crossed, fingers crossed as a sign of the cross. And if another person did this, they would identify themselves as people of the cross. That's what they were saying as they greeted each other. Today, cross fingers means something very different, doesn't it? If you cross your fingers or people cross their fingers, it means someone is hoping something will happen. Something will or hoping something will or will not come to pass. It's sort of like a wishing good luck in a situation. And I think it's quite ironic, isn't it, that the gesture of crossed fingers, first instituted by the early church as a symbol of the cross of Christ and the certainty of the promises of God in Jesus, now represents the exact opposite, just this wishful hoping. When they were making that symbol of the cross, they were, uh, they were expressing a confidence in the completed work of Christ on our behalf that we can have 100% absolute assurance of our salvation and the absolute guarantee of an inheritance because it's not dependent upon us, but it's because of the knowledge of what Jesus has done for us on our part on the cross. Luck has absolutely nothing to do with it. And I wonder this morning, do you have that same assurance of those early believers? Have you encountered the saving power of the cross, the forgiveness of sins, the peace with God, the knowledge deep within your heart that your eternal future is secure in Him? If you're in Christ this morning, and you know these truths, our response is to reflect again on the centrality of the cross and the power of the cross and the magnitude of Christ's sacrifice for us as we come into this Easter season and now allow our hearts just to be overflowing with praise to Him, to keep the cross front and center and to, to make a, a concerted focus on this as we come into this Easter season, not just an Easter season, every day of our lives, in fact, to keep the, the truth of the cross front and center for us. Well, perhaps you're here this morning and you're in Christ, but you're feeling overwhelmed and defeated. Your sins are weighing you down. You feel captive to the lies of the enemy, captive to guilt and shame. Maybe the evil one has been holding you captive in some other way, in a circumstance, a situation, in your thinking in some way. Then the invitation to you this morning is to come again to the foot of the cross, to reaffirm and declare these truths that because of the cross, you have now been forgiven. Jesus is now your righteousness, your holiness. He is your redemption. And that Satan and all the principalities and powers of darkness have been defeated on the cross. You are no longer a slave to sin. At the name of Jesus, Satan and the powers of darkness must bow. You are a child of God. And you can reaffirm these truths as you come to the foot of the cross this morning again. Well, perhaps you're here this morning and you realize that you have been doing the religious thing or trying to live a good life or a bit of a combination of the both in the hope that God will bless you and look after you. But you realize you don't have an assurance of eternal life. You don't have that confidence. You're not sure that God has accepted you. There's a striving going on for you. You're hoping that you'll be 
that you'll go to heaven one day, but you don't know for sure, you don't have that peace with God, well, the invitation is for you this morning. Easter 2023, not a better time to actually say, Jesus, I'm coming to the foot of the cross to acknowledge my need for you, to come to you as my Savior, to say, Jesus, I can't do it. I've tried. My best efforts are not enough. And this morning is a morning of surrender to you to say, Jesus, I'm surrendering. I'm tired. I'm worn out. I'm coming to the cross. And this morning, your Heavenly Father wants you to experience for yourself the power of the cross. If you're online this morning, you've never understood this truth. The Holy Spirit wants to you to encounter the power of the cross, Jesus forgiving your sins, setting you free. No need to sleep on stone floors with stone pillows. Jesus has done it for you. We could never do it ourselves. And this morning, as we come into Easter, this is the best time where you can say, Jesus, I'm coming to you. You don't have to clean your life up. You don't have to sort things out. You can simply come as you are. And acknowledge in repentance and faith, Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need a saviour. I need you to save me, to redeem me. And in that moment, you will encounter the power of the cross of Christ to set you free, to forgive you, to be made righteous and holy. It's the most amazing decision, most amazing experience you can ever encounter the cross, the center of all of human history. Will you come to the cross this morning? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible truth. Lord, you're so near this morning as we focus on the cross because this is at the heart, Lord, of it all. Your sacrifice for us, you making a way, everything pointing to the cross. And so we come humbly to the foot of the cross this morning. Lord, I want to pray for those of us who are in Christ. And maybe this is a familiar message, but I pray it would not become familiar or mundane to any one of us, Lord. But the wonder of the cross, the magnificence of the cross, the sacrifice you made for us on the cross would take hold of our hearts afresh this Easter season. That we'll reflect on this, not just today, Lord, but in the days ahead, Lord, just continue to pour out our thanks and our praise to you. Keep it central in all that we do. Help us to live in the way of the cross, Lord, I pray. For others here this morning, Lord, who are feeling overwhelmed and defeated, weighed down by the weight of sin, guilt and shame, well, I pray this morning as they come to the cross, you will remind them of all that you've done for us there, that all of our sins have been forgiven that we have been declared righteous. You are our holiness, our redemption. Pray for others, Lord, where they're just feeling the, the evil one, the powers of darkness have just been having a field day in their lives. There's been a battle going on. The deceiver, Lord, giving us wrong thoughts. Will I pray this morning too, these ones coming to the foot of the cross, claiming the victory that you have won, that at the name of Jesus, every knee must bow. The powers of darkness must bow this morning. 
We come to the cross this morning. We claim again, reaffirm, Lord, the victory you've won for us. You, Jesus, are greater. May we live in the victory of all that you've done for us on the cross. For those this morning, Lord, who have been striving, trying to do the religious thing, trying to live a good life in the hopes of pleasing you, Lord, but have never experienced the assurance of salvation. Well, even now in these moments, I pray they'll just turn to you, Jesus. If that's you this morning, in fact, you can just pray in your heart, Lord Jesus. I come to you this morning. I come to the foot of the cross. You can pray, Lord Jesus, just forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for trusting in my own righteousness. But this morning, I surrender to you. I place my faith and trust in you. I come in repentance, Lord. Please forgive me for my sin where I've gone my own way. And in faith, Lord, I look to you. I look to the cross this morning. Salvation that you have earned for me there. And Lord, for any in this place, that you pray, just pray those words in your own heart. And for any in that place this morning, just come into you. May you fill them, Lord, with the joy of your salvation, the freedom that is found in you. Oh, Lord, draw people to yourself this morning. And so, Lord, we just want to worship you. You're an amazing Savior, an amazing King. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you that our debt has been paid, that we can live for you. And so, Lord, continue to lead us this Easter season. May these truths, Lord, just fill our hearts, overflow from our hearts and our lives, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a beautiful song as we finish that speaks about all Jesus has done for us on Calvary. And as we sing this song, it's just an opportunity for you to reflect in your heart. If there's something particular you want prayer for this morning, you're welcome to do that. Some of our pastors and prayer to me down the front, just come in the front, just pray for you briefly this morning as well. But let's stand together on our feet. Let's not hold back, church. Let's give thanks for all that Jesus has done for us at Calvary. Let's worship Him. my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me I see his wounds his hands his feet my savior on that cursed tree
worship you. Lord God, we worship you this morning. We thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us on the cross. And thank you that you didn't stay on that cross, but you rose again, that we might know life eternal in you. And so, Lord, we pray your blessing over this Easter season. May these truths fill us and overflow from us. May many across our community discover, encounter, understand this truth as well. The good news of the gospel, we pray. And so bless each one I ask. Bless our conversations now, Lord, as we continue just to give thanks together. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated if you'd like prayer in some way. Our prayer team will be down the front here. Our prayer lounge up the back as well. Don't forget our connections lounge. And a blessing to all of you joining us online as well. So good to have you.